welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman. And if you are a regular listener, that you know that we have done a couple episodes on anthropology the last two weeks. And at the beginning of the last episode, I didn't know if we were going to extend that conversation uh, another week or two, but I think we covered that sufficiently when you couple the conversation from the past couple weeks with the uh, review of Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Uh, we've done now three or four weeks on anthropology this year, so certainly recommend going back and listening to those episodes. Uh, today's episode is a standalone. We're looking at Christian nationalism, and this is a specific request from one of our listeners, which we always appreciate, so feel free to send in uh, your ongoing comments, uh, questions. Feel free, we don't say this often, but feel free to comment and, and or rate the uh, podcast itself on whatever platform you happen to be uh, listening to this on. That actually helps make this podcast findable for other people. So if you found this helpful in any way, uh, you can make it findable by interacting with the podcast, rating it, commenting uh, on your platform of choice. So Christian nationalism, not a common topic on this podcast, and not that I don't believe we've ever touched on this, Drew. So where are we going today? Before we dive in, do want to acknowledge just what you said, Mick. Um, this is a request from a listener, and you know we've tried, as best I can tell, just about any request that's come in. We've we've either worked it into an episode or done a standalone episode. We really do want this podcast to be a service to the church. And on the one hand, you know we're going to always avoid getting too caught up in current events, um, but we also want to make sure that we are addressing the things that that you guys are wrestling with out there. So please do send in your emails. We we take those seriously and do what we can to work them into our topics. Well, if you're online a lot, you, you're probably um, very aware that the term Christian nationalism is getting used pretty frequently, and now even in mainstream news, um, you'll come across it, and especially related to political developments in the United States over the last couple of years. But more than being a, a hot-button issue, it actually does raise a lot of what I find to be pretty interesting um, questions related to um, both the topic itself and also how we use language as a society. And so I want to do three things in this episode today. Um, first thing we want to do is look at Christian nationalism itself. You know, I'll try to give it the, my most charitable overview of what it could be, but ultimately why I'm not a fan. However, I also want to look at how our society is using imprecise language in order to speak negatively of ideas that we don't agree with. And, and maybe the third feature of this conversation is um, highlighting concept creep that we've mentioned uh, before and how I think this might also be evidence of concept creep in our society. So first part of the time, we're going to look at the actual concept of Christian nationalism, but the second part of the time, we're going to shift and look at how our culture is employing language. So since this is an emotional issue, let me give you uh, my position up front. Regarding the term Christian nationalism itself, I am skeptical, if not outright hostile, towards the concept, and I'll share why in a theological sense here in a moment. At the same time, I'm also skeptical in the way that this is being used culturally, because I think it's being used as a broader critique for how Christians live out their faith in the public square that goes beyond actual Christian nationalism, and we need to separate these two things out. So that's my overall thesis today. So let's start off, though, defining Christian nationalism. Now, bear in mind, this is not a technical term, and uh, as best I can tell, actually, did some research on this. It's very hard to find anyone who is, in any kind of meaningful sense, advocating for it, especially in a theological or academic setting. Um, there is the exception of Catholic integralism, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. 
But in general, the idea of Christian nationalism is almost entirely being used by its opponents. And so people who don't like the idea, they're noticing a range of behavior that they don't like, and they've come up with a term for it, and then they're using it to describe certain figures or the belief of certain figures. And that's always challenging. Um, Whenever we have a label that is largely pejorative, um, rather than being something that is the self-definition of its adherents. And just in case you're worried about any kind of political implication of this, um, I, I see the same tendency on people who would lean more conservative as well. But we have this danger of using terms that we are using to describe our opponents that they are not actually using to describe themselves. And almost always that's going to lead to imprecise definitions. But simply put, the concern here is the goal of a Christian nation. And that would be that the Christian faith is aligned with the geopolitical structure and government of a society. And that is the goal of Christian nationalism. And typically what this requires is Christians to obtain power in a society, and then that power is used to advance a Christian vision for that society. And over time, that leads to institutions that are intended to reflect a Christian culture. So a key idea here is power. Um, For that to work, you need Christians to actually wield power power in government, power in economics, Um, you know, wherever power is found in society, Christian nationalism is dependent upon the wielding of power. Before we critique an idea, I think we need to do our best to provide the most charitable and generous understanding of the idea, which we don't like, just so that we're being fair in the way that we're talking about it. And um, so I think, you know, why this might be appealing is, first of all, as I've said before, there is no such thing as neutral culture. And it's foolish to think that there is, that there is this option of neutral secularity as opposed to these powerful religious institutions or something like that. You know, everything in society is based in some type of active belief system. And whether it's overtly religious or not, there is no such thing as neutrality. Second, in any kind of society, something is required to arbitrate and to establish norms of behavior within that society. So our nation, the United States, that confesses pluralism, there still needs to be something that is able to arbitrate between the active belief systems. Um, even in a society where people all believe the same, you know, there's still something, some kind of shaping force that governs how and why that society functions. And that something is necessarily established by some type of system of power. You know, I, I think we all saw an example, anybody who watched the coronation of the British monarch, you saw this, you know, it was very overtly religious language. It was a worship service and I found it to be pretty moving. And it's this idea of a human authority of a king is humbling himself before divine authority and his power is only granted to him on behalf of God. And this actually provides a great case study, both positively and negatively for what we're talking about today, because the symbolism of that is beautiful and is powerful if that's actually how humans behaved. But if you study British history, what you also find is the absolute tendencies of the early monarchs that gave way over time to democratic institutions that now shape the world happened because monarchs did not live up to what they claimed to live up to. And the power that they sought that they maybe confessed in their coronation ceremonies to be from God was not really the way that they governed, um, which was instead based upon the accumulation of human power. And that leads to my critique of Christian nationalism is that ultimately it depends upon human power in a faith tradition that is instead teaching us about the power of God and human humility. And I just don't think the two mix. Another example of um, what you could label Christian nationalism is what's known as Catholic integralism. And this is the belief that the church and the state should actually be wedded together. And we need to remember that what we think of normal in the modern United States is a historic anomaly. 
And in most societies, religious power and political power have gone together. And still in Europe, there are official state churches in most of the nations in Europe today. And so in this way, the United States is quite a bit of an outlier. And then certainly when we go into other parts of the world, particularly within the Islamic world, this is the norm. Now, there are varying degrees of how this looks as far as very active church presence in a society versus a very minimal or purely perfunctory role that maybe a religious institution might take. But still, there is a more official wedding between church and between state, and that has been the norm in a lot of places. Patrick Deenan is a Notre Dame scholar who has advocated for some form of Catholic integralism, and he presents a pretty compelling case in his book, Why Liberalism Failed. And I've referenced this before, but he's not necessarily saying uh, liberalism in a modern progressive sense, but looking at the entire classic liberal tradition that would encompass both what we would consider to be modern conservatism and modern liberalism in a political sense. He's looking at the whole thing, and essentially his point is that someone somewhere has to arbitrate what's right and wrong. And he goes through a variety of options, um, but what he's landing on is he's saying that in the end, someone has to wield power in order for us to realize our different ambitions in a society. And he traces what he considers to be some problems in our society because we haven't taken that seriously enough. A lot of recent talk about Christian nationalism is almost entirely focused on evangelicals in the United States. I do think it's worth noting how this has played out in Europe and how this has played out in Catholic societies as well, just to give a broader understanding of the philosophy behind this topic. Now, all that to say, I said at the beginning, I don't like this idea. And the reason why is because I believe it is dependent upon human power to realize the vision of God. And in a Christian sense that's dependent upon a crucified Savior as our Lord and King, I just don't think this works. When I look at the history of the church, I notice a few things. First of all, Jesus himself did not come to establish a political kingdom. He was perfectly content to allow his church to grow and flourish in a society that was governed by a different power system. And actually, you could even say different power systems. Even at that time, there were competing visions for society and state-sponsored religion that arbitrated what was right and wrong in that society, and the church was a minority faith. And many of us would look back at that time as the apex of the church in the world, And I think in a lot of ways, rightfully so, the church was persecuted, the church was poor, and yet the church was vibrant and potent because it wasn't caught up in the quest for human power. And then if you go further in church history, what I I see over and over again is when the state-sponsored power gets mixed with the Christian church, bad things tend to happen. Uh, This is the high Middle Ages when we see corruption in the Catholic church, or we could go any number of examples in our own nation. These have come about because the, the church and the state got too cozy and we lost sight of our potency of gospel witness. By contrast, the great movements of revival were typically among those who did not have the accumulation of power. And I've mentioned Pentecostal revivals, um, I think are an incredible example of that that continue all around the world today. And where I see these revivals spreading the fastest tend to be places where the church is cut off from power in society. Um, Last I checked, the fastest growing the church in the world today is in the nation of Iran, which is under an Islamic government. Prior to that, we looked at the nation of China, um, especially during the Cultural Revolution when the church was being actively persecuted in a pretty intense way. There was an incredible revival movement that took place. And then if you take a step back and look at the Pentecostal movements in Africa and Latin America, for a very long time at least, these grew up without any kind of state support and often in the face of local opposition at some level. And yet the church continued to spread and the lack of power did not hinder the gospel witness, but actually... I think at one level, enabled the church to stay focused on the things of God and not get caught up in the quest for human power. 
So what I hear you saying so far, Drew, you're, you're approaching this at something of an academic level, at least attempting to define terms that we talked about concept creep, where terms like Christian nationalism can start to refer to a, a blanket of ideas. And often these terms are used in the pejorative, which further clouds the kind of the fundamental meaning of what we're talking about. And so what I hear you saying is that kind of at a, at a root level, this idea of Christian nationalism being coupled with the, the notion of power, that Christian institutions need to wield power at a societal level, at a political, economic level, in order to affect change and to bring about God's kingdom on the earth or a representation of God's kingdom on the earth. And, and looking historically, that has not boded well for the church, that uh, the introduction of political power has meant the, the corruption or the impotency of the church. So I, I think at a high level, I hear you obviously speaking very critically of Christian nationalism, and again, at kind of a core definition level when it comes to power, coupling power with the church. Am I hearing you accurately? Correct. And that's my, that's my concern with this concept, is it's explicitly saying that Christians need to accumulate power so that we can restore a vision for our society that is Christian, and typically over and against some kind of secular vision for our society. And I just don't see that. I think if we look at the life of Jesus, and if we look at the history of the church, that's not what we find. That's not the way that God has moved, and that is not the way that God tells us he's going to move in Scripture. And when God himself walked this earth, that's not the way that he chose to do things. So I think as followers of Jesus, we have to embrace the way of the cross and not the way of seeking to gain temporal worldly power so that we can achieve some kind of vision. Now, the flip side, what I want to make sure to to carefully say is that I don't think this means we just have to cede control to every aspect of society for people who have a different vision. I just think the approach happens as individual Christians and Christian churches live in the kingdom of God. And then where we are invited to participate in the public square, we want to do so in accordance with our faith. And so I, I want to be explicitly Christian in every setting that I'm invited into, but I'm not doing that in some kind of way where I'm trying to gain power so that I can win back our nation. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm participating in the work of the Spirit, I'm believing for the kingdom of God, I'm praying for revival, I'm sharing my faith with those around me, I'm modeling the life of Christ by caring for my neighbor and the poor and my own family. And in in doing so, what I'm doing is I'm living out my faith, and churches then become these outposts of the kingdom of God. And then in times of revival, what starts to happen is Christians are are able to step up and and, uh, what um, James Davison Hunter has referred to as a faithful witness in society that I think does bring about meaningful change in the world around us. But it's not the naked grab for power that I believe lies beneath the term Christian nationalism that many, including myself, are worried about. Is it safe to make a distinction? I hear some ecclesiological language there. Is it safe to make a distinction that you're talking about um, the church as an institution versus the church as people, where you're not advocating for the church as an institution to grab for political power, but you are advocating for the kind of this grassroots, uh, the church as an institution equipping the saints, individual believers, to be salt and light in every uh, domain of society, including politics, including economics, and to make a difference from the ground up? Yeah, I think that's a relatively fair way of looking at it. I mean, I think for me, in all settings, I'm saying grasping for power is not the answer, but instead um, living faithfully is the answer. And so whether individuals, um, individual churches as institutions, or the church writ large in our society, what I would advocate for is faithfulness and genuinely seeking to live in the example of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, modeling the things of the kingdom, wherever God has given us influence, where it's not about accumulating power, but it's about living faithfully. And then what happens is... We do have roles in our society, and 
We want to live faithfully within those roles, and we want to bring our whole selves to those roles. And so if I am in business and I have a lot of responsibility, then what that doesn't mean is that I have to shift into a that I have to shift into a secular way of doing business when I show up to my workplace. I need to honor the workplace norms that that are around me, but I'm still a Christian. I don't change who I am in that environment. But I'm also not believing that if I can just get more power or take over something, that then we can install a Christian vision. I mean, even if you are on the hierarchy of your company, the very lowest person, you can bring about a, a positive witness for Jesus in your example. And in fact, those are typically the people that God uses, is um, just as much as God may use a CEO somewhere, God is going to use a retail clerk. And oftentimes, it's that latter person is used most powerfully of God. And so it doesn't become about how much influence or power we have in the world or the need to gain that if we want to make some kind of difference. It becomes about us living faithfully wherever God's placed us. And if we can be faithful when we have a lot of influence, then we can be faithful if we don't have much influence, because the goal is not the influence. The goal is faithfulness to Jesus. And of course, in talking about that, I'm not even using examples um, from politics. And where I think we do have to be nuanced here, and this is going to be a good segue into where I want to go next with it, I'm also not saying that Christians should abdicate the public square in any kind of way. So there are wonderful men and women of God who are called to politics or other places where they do exercise power in our society. And I think that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I have a concern with how the term Christian nationalism is currently being used, because I think, at least in some circles, it's an attempt to get Christians to back off stewarding the influence that they do have. So for me, where this term is a negative concept is the idea that what we need right now is to accumulate more power as though that's going to bring about the change that we want to see in the world around us. That's the idea that I'm rejecting. But I want to draw a line and say that I think there's an incredible history of Christians stewarding the influence that they've been given within a society, however much or little that may be, and using that as a place where God's kingdom is brought to earth, not because they have lots of power, but because they're faithful with the influence they do have. And that does include Christians that are called to politics or other type of influence in a society. Yeah, I think as I've had conversations about this with friends of mine, and I would fall politically somewhere in the middle, it's more complexity to that, but just generally speaking, more of a centrist politically, and I have friends that are further to the right than me, and this is often a topic that they bring up, the lack of a willingness to abdicate society to you know a quote-unquote liberal agenda or a secular agenda. So keep developing this for us, because I think this gets kind of muddled in people's minds and could use some further fleshing out. And this brings me back to language, because I think the problem with the term Christian nationalism is that it's a term that is almost entirely used by its opponents rather than its adherents. And so it's hard to know what we're actually talking about when, when this term is being used, and there's a really broad understanding of what it could be, and almost depending on the person you're talking to, they're going to have a different understanding of what it actually is in their mind. I actually did a search for the concept of Christian nationalism in some academic databases, just looking at journal articles, and I went through pages of results and I could not find a single one that was some type of positive contribution advocating for it. Every single one was somebody who was a, a pretty sharp critic of the term, and they were writing about the concept of, of Christian nationalism and then a whole host of generative topics based upon it, of its effect on society or why it's some, causing some kind of problem. And this is always a big red flag to me. 
And I think if, I, if you're looking for an analog on the other side of the political ledger, um, the term woke functions in a lot of the same way. It's very hard to find somebody who's using that to describe themselves. It's almost always being used by somebody who disagrees. And typically what happens with terms like this that are largely pejorative is we give them a really broad semantic range. And so we use it to describe extreme behavior on the one hand that probably represents a radical edge of our society, but then is projected out across a much broader range of much more normal behavior that most ordinary people would actually be comfortable with or acknowledge to be a good thing. And the problem is that we're using the same word to describe both. Now, if I'm a political operative, that makes a lot of sense why I'd want to do that. It's always good to paint your opponents as extremists. And there are people uh, you know, in modern American politics or any other political system that's ever existed, there are people that stand to benefit from that happening. Whether you're on the right or on the left, if I can make my opponents look like they're all extremists, that's going to benefit my cause. But as Christians who are trying to make sense of our world, we've got to be extremely careful about that kind of behavior. Because what it does is it causes us to look at people with whom we might disagree way less charitably because I'm not interpreting you based on what you've said. I'm interpreting you in light of what some extreme person I read about on the internet said. And, and that's a, a very present danger, regardless of where you're coming from politically. And I think we got to be careful about that. And, you know, to use my example from earlier, there's a huge difference between the evangelical figure Lance Wallnau compared to Patrick Deenan's Catholic integralism compared to other Christians that are just trying to maintain their Christian witness in their place of influence. I, you know, massive difference between those different groups and why they do what they do and what they're advocating for. And yet the same term is being blanketly applied to all of them. And that should be a red flag for all of us. So I think when we come to this term, we have to differentiate. Are we talking about the extremely small minority of Christians who are advocating for some kind of revolution? Are we talking about a still very small group of Christians that are working on some type of proactive plan to install some kind of Christian government? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's not a large number of people in our society today. Or are we talking about a spectrum of people that maybe are sympathetic to that and yet still want to use their Christian witness in the public square? Or are we talking about what I would consider to be a pretty normal way of Christians viewing the world, which is that the ways of God are better than the ways of the world, and wherever I have influence, I'd love to see the ways of God come. So as best I can tell in how this term is getting used today, for some people, it, it is this kind of evocative narrative where there is this white patriarchal group of Christians who are seeking to impose a belief system upon others, and typically those others are groups of people who have been historically oppressed and in need of some type of liberation. Uh, so in other words, this is a regressive political movement that combines you know, ethno-nationalism, Christian identity, and a moral vision, and it's trying to impose this through some means of power. Hopefully, it's obvious that I categorically oppose those efforts. However, there is a danger that a whole lot of other beliefs are getting lumped under this umbrella, where any form of Christian engagement in the public square is being labeled Christian nationalism. So for example, if I use my political vote to vote against abortion, or transgender extremism in society, does that now make me a Christian nationalism? Is the fact that I do not conform to the secular belief system, does that make me a Christian nationalism because I am not willing to come under an alien belief system in the way that I steward my influence in society? Am I, as a believer, allowed to have a different moral vision from the dominant majority culture around me? Or is it wrong for me to exercise my duty as a citizen, you know, or do I need to abdicate that? Even though those questions I just asked seem rhetorical, I think it is worth noting that for many Christians in history, they answered that they do need to step out of the public square entirely. 
I first see this in some of the early monastic traditions. That's why people moved away, as they just said, public life is too corrupting, and we're better off being faithful on our own out in the desert. Um, over time, the monastic tradition got caught up in power struggles, and that became unhealthy in certain places. But in, in recent times, the Anabaptist traditions um, that still to this day, you know, this is where you see things like military exemptions or things like that. And there's whole segments of Christian populations that don't vote and even view it as some type of sinful behavior to vote. Uh, early Pentecostals, some of them took this line of thinking as well, because they just thought, I don't want to get mixed up in worldly affairs. And so at one level, I'm sympathetic to that strain of thought, but I don't think it's entirely the answer. Even the groups that have attempted that over time can't escape it. I think instead what Christians have to do is embrace the way of Jesus and including how we steward and exercise our influence in society. And I think we have to be extremely careful that we don't get caught up in power struggles, but I don't know that the answer is to just abdicate in culture entirely. So if you're trying to summarize where we are so far, we should be very careful as believers about thinking that accumulating power is the answer for God's purposes on the earth. At the same time, we also need to be careful about the way pejorative terms are used and get specific about what it's actually trying to say and what it's trying to label as either positive or negative. And what I'm suggesting is that Christian nationalism does describe, on the one hand, certain behaviors that I think are wrong for the church to embrace. At the same time, I think the nature of its imprecise definition is being used in in a form of concept creep to describe a whole range of things that Christians are doing that aren't really Christian nationalists but are being interpreted in that way and with the goal, I think, of, of seeking for Christians to disengage from public life. And, and that is concerning to me. Even as I reject Christian nationalism in the, in the proper sense of the term, I, I do want to advocate that Christians do steward the influence that they've been given, as long as they do so through the example of Jesus, who did not come to accumulate power or influence, but instead came to serve. So Drew, in this podcast, a lot of time we're talking about secularism as a religion, as a belief system and kind of comparing and contrasting that with the Christian tradition. So how does, as, as you kind of dissect Christian nationalism, how does secularism as a belief system inform this conversation? Yeah, I think there's one common way of understanding the term Christian nationalism, where there is neutral, pluralistic, secular culture, and then there's Christian nationalism that's an intrusion that's trying to advocate for a different moral vision. And, you know, there's probably some truth to that, um, but I think that's a pretty simplistic way of understanding society. Instead, I would say there's a lot of different, very active belief systems that are operative in the world around us, and there is no single neutral belief system. It just does not exist. So at one level, any group is danger of nationalism, where we, you know, want to take our moral vision and establish it by force or any means necessary. That's a present tendency in any society, in any belief system, and that includes Christianity, that includes ethnicity, that includes any number of other things, even ideological understandings of the term nationalism. And some of the greatest horrors of the last couple hundred years in the world have been because of these belief systems gaining traction in a society. So I believe it's entirely right to be concerned about nationalism as a concept being taken too far. But I also think it's worth remembering that there is no neutrality in our belief system. And so everybody shows up to their job, to politics, to anything else with some type of belief system that is guiding the way that they steward their influence. Some people, they are avowedly seeking to accumulate power so they can force their belief system on others. And I think that's always wrong and something that we should oppose. But the, the thought that you know there's this group of people that are able to set their beliefs aside in the way that they engage the public square, I think is entirely a myth. 
And so even though we should be wary of any form of Christian nationalism, we should also, with confidence, bring our whole selves to our engagement with the world around us, because that's literally what everybody else has to do as well. And so if an interpretation of Christian nationalism is being used to tell a Christian or any other person that they can't bring their belief system into the world, then I think that cuts against the grain of the moral vision of our United States founding in the first place. You know, it's if, if our nation truly is predicated on some vision of pluralism, where you can have a variety of different beliefs and still have a place, and we work it together, and we work it out together as a society, then I think that that levels the playing field for all of us. And so, you know, as I'm voting, and I'm voting in light of my moral beliefs, I, I recognize that my fellow citizens are doing the same thing, and that's being played out. If I'm in my business and making decisions and making decisions according to my moral beliefs, my coworkers are doing the same thing. And I think it's unfair to label that type of behavior as Christian nationalism any more than somebody who has a secular belief system and they're voting according to their moral beliefs that they derive from their secularity. You know, is that a form of nationalism? I don't think so. And just like I don't think when Christians do that, it's the same thing. I think that's the foundation of our society and the political system of our society. Now, that's not my area of expertise, so I don't want to go too far off into that, other than to make the point that we need to be careful about terms that are given an expanded range of meaning, especially when it's a pejorative term. And I said this earlier in the episode, but there are certainly terms that I hear conservatives using. It's not religious terminology, so that's why I'm not getting into it at the same level, but um, I, I think we see the same thing. Words like Marxist or woke or things like that are often used in the same way. Are we talking about a specific political system when we use those terms, or are we using them to describe somebody that has just different beliefs than I do? You know, when people use the word woke, are we using that to describe somebody who cares about any kind of engagement with racial equality or somebody who is caught up with a very specific progressive ideology? And here's my point, you know, all of that takes a whole lot of other episodes and most of that is outside the realm of our expertise, other than just to say those all represent really different things. And when we use one term to describe it all, and especially if we do it so that we can discredit people, I don't know that we're doing intellectual justice to what people are actually trying to say. And so for me, you know, and hopefully I'm modeling here, maybe not just the topics at hand, but an approach for how to engage these topics is to get more specific on what people are trying to say, why they're trying to say it, taking the time to evaluate that the merits of what they're trying to say, and then offering a thoughtful critique of that position if we feel that it's not right. And I believe that's what we should do. Where you do have influence in a society, that's a way that you can steward that influence, whether it's political, economic, academic, or whatever else that may be, is modeling charitable actions in the way that you approach people, but also not backing off of your convictions of what you think is going to be right. And, and I'll just say for myself, where possible, I try to use pejorative labels. And so if, if somebody is not willing to describe themselves with a certain form of terminology, I'm careful about using that terminology and describing that person just because I don't know that it's fair or does justice to what they're trying to say. I think it takes a lot longer, but it's ultimately a lot more powerful if I can really listen to their main argument and then provide a, a kind yet clear reason why I'm not going to go there if it's something that I feel is wrong. And in the end, that's going to have a lot more sticking power and also, I think, probably be more helpful for people if we'll take the time to do it that way rather than take the lazy way out of using evocative language to brand people that we don't like so that we don't have to engage with what they're actually trying to tell us. So in conclusion, and, and really beyond the scope of today's episode, I do think that as believers in the United States in the 21st century, we, we need to develop a vision for what does it mean for us to engage in our communities 
um, referencing um, Hunter again, he advocates for what he calls faithful presence, which I think is pretty compelling, but maybe incomplete, at least in the specificity of what that means. But the idea being that first and foremost, I need to be faithful and, and live out a faithful vision of following Christ and his example in the world, and that becoming my first priority and not just blindly following whatever society tells me to do. Um, in society's quest for power, money, and influence, but instead following the example of the Savior. And then within that faithfulness, I need to be a witness for God wherever he's placed me. And where I've been given a lot of influence, I want to steward that well, and I want to steward that faithfully. Um, And where I haven't been given a lot of influence, I can still take heart because my influence isn't the key driver of what God's going to do anyway. Instead, he's the one who acts, he's the one who saves, he's the one who redeems, and my job is to be faithful. So if you're listening, and for those of you, if you do have political office or something else, please continue to serve faithfully where God has has placed you. I just would say that word faithful is really important, uh, of really figure out what does it mean to be faithful to the ways of Jesus and not get caught up with the power struggles of the world around us, but trust that if we do things in the humble, servant-hearted way of Jesus, that in the end, he has the final word. And for the rest of us and the majority of us who don't have that kind of influence, let's not get caught up in the idea that our ticket to bringing about meaningful change is to gain influence. And then when that happens, we can finally see the change that we want to have. Let's instead follow the path of believers who've gone before us and recognize that our greatest influence in society is prayer, is the way that we live our own lives and our families and our communities, of being faithful with even the tiny influence that God has given us. And whenever we do that, we stand on the shoulders of believers who've gone before time and time and time and again where there's been these great revival movements. It's been people who lived exactly like that, people who were not concerned about their influence in society, but instead people who lived very faithfully under the authority of Christ. And then over time, that becomes the salt and the yeast and the dough that brings about the the broad transformation in the world around us, to use those metaphors um, that Jesus provides. Yeah, and just in closing, what we're not saying is that these are not super complicated uh, issues. And so what we're providing today are some frameworks uh, from which to begin to evaluate these topics. And as always, we encourage meaningful dialogue with uh, others who hold opposing viewpoints to do so charitably. And uh, Drew, thanks for prepping content today. Thank you, our listeners, for tuning in, as always. And we will catch you next week on Ideology.